It's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Daniel Jurgen. Daniel Jurgen is one of the world's most influential voices on energy. He is the author of numerous books, including most recently, The Quest, Energy, Security, and the Remaking of the Modern World. He is a recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Prize, and also the winner of a United States Energy Award. Currently, he serves as chairman of IHS Cambridge Energy Research Associates, the leading research and consulting firm in the field, and as CNBC's global energy expert. Last week, he was honored with the Charles H. Percy Award for Public Service from the Alliance to Save Energy. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Daniel Jurgen. Thank you very much, Gregory, uh, for that most gracious welcome, and thank you all of you this evening for coming uh, here to the Peterson Museum. Uh, glad to see you all here. I'm certainly very pleased to be part of the discussion and the program under the Zokola Public Square. Uh, I have great respect for its commitment to connecting uh, people and ideas, and I know they put on terrific programs, and I'm happy to be part of their program. Also, what a great location uh, for, the, for this evening's discussion. I mean, this was really brilliant. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and you'll find, because uh, when you, if you read the book, if, when you read the quest, you'll find out, uh, first, this is a wonderful museum in itself, how appropriate to Los Angeles. But secondly, you'll find that the conclusion of the book is actually focused exactly on the question of what kind of car you all will be driving in 10 or 15 years. And so, um, wonderful setting for having that discussion. I'm also grateful to the Skyline Bookstore for uh, being here and... Uh, giving the opportunity for the book to be here. I was thinking as I was preparing uh, for this evening that today was one of those beautiful Southern California days, the sort of days that drew people to Southern California, to Los Angeles after World War II and in the decades that followed, that drew millions and millions of people. Indeed, the weather itself, a day like this, was one of the prized possessions of a California lifestyle along with another prized possession, the automobile, represented here. It was said at the time that Los Angeles had the greatest concentration of motor vehicles in the world. But in the years that followed World War II and into the decades that followed, these kind of day that we saw today, they grew rarer and rarer. And the reason was that an enemy had invaded the Southland. Smog laid siege to Los Angeles Basin. And it really did seem to be a city under siege. It stung the, the smog, which was a term originally invented in England to talk about the combination of uh, coal smoke and fog. But the smog in Los Angeles stung the, lo the lungs, burned the throat, irritated the eyes, and also caused uh, respiratory ailments. Uh, I grew up uh, just a few miles from here, and I had three paper routes, and I could remember uh, how painful it was simply to toss the newspapers uh, because of, uh, of the smog, and certainly many of you in this audience will remember that. And the fact that there was a smog was a result of the propensity of the, of the local geography. When the Spaniards first came here, the, the Indians who lived here called uh, Los Angeles based in the Valley of Smokes because there was this kind of current uh, haze that hung over it. But as the city grew and as the region grew after World War II, the smog problems got worse and worse and seemed to reach a crisis level. Uh, Los Angeles Times headline said, angered citizens voice war on smog demand. Uh, 
uh, it was so bad that the mayor of Los Angeles was actually hauled in front of a grand jury and asked what he was going to do. And he said, there's not much I can do except he issued a proclamation to the populace urging them to halt automobile traffic and direct people to stay home. At a meeting of local businessmen's uh, group, uh, the Optimist Club, there's a wonderful picture of it in the Quest, they donned gas masks and the sign on the wall said, why wait till 1955, we might not even be alive. Well, there were some people who did actually have an idea of what to do about it. And one was a professor at uh, the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, uh, Ari Hagen-Smith. He had a fascination with gardens. Uh, He had a fascination with kind of understanding where taste came from. He figured out where the, uh, what, where the taste, the origins of taste in wine, onions, and garlic. He was also the man who did the historic uh, achievement of identifying the active agent in marijuana. But, <laughs> but his fascination uh, in the period I was talking about, he was really fascinated by the pineapple, and he, the, his beloved pineapple, and he wanted to understand where the taste from pineapples came from. What, what was the chemical basis of it? And he was working in his lab one day when he stepped out uh, for a breath of fresh air. Except there was no fresh air. There was, as he said, that stinking cloud that rolled over the landscape every afternoon. He said there has to be a way to understand where smog comes from. And it was a subject of great argument and dispute. And he set to work on it. And as he said, we hit the jackpot with the first nickel. That is, it was a result of incompletely burned gasoline uh, emissions. Um, it was a shock. I mean, there was a big argument as to whether that was a cause or not, but people accepted it. But it was a shock to realize that this element, the automobile that was so central to the California way of life, was also causing this great problem. One letter writer to the LA Times wrote, we have created one of the finest networks of freeways in the country and suddenly wake up to discover that we have also created a monster. A major battle ensued over what to do, but in due course, uh, uh, the automobile engines were re-engineered and the problem uh, was beginning to be solved. But it was still such a challenge in the 1960s that uh, Governor Ronald Reagan, during one smog attack, was so severe, he went on television to, to tell the public in this area to limit all but absolutely necessary uh, automobile travel. Another thing that Reagan did was signed into law legislation setting up something called the California Air Resources Board, which would start to kind of regulate and try and get a handle on smog. And who did he appoint as the first head of the California Air Resources Board, CARB? None other than Ari Hagen-Smith, who by this time was known as the father of smog. He really didn't like that title because whenever they said, you're the father of smog, he'd say, okay, who's the mother? And left it at that. But what began then was a great achievement in using technology uh, and applying regulation to roll back the smog and give us the air quality that we were able to see today. By the end of the 1990s, the amount of smog-causing emissions coming out of a tailpipe of an automobile were only 1% of what they had been in the 1970s. Also, at that point, the car began to move towards something else called the zero emissions vehicle. Uh, And that was what became known as the electric car. Uh, But the 
it failed it, its first round. Uh, it just failed. And, you know, there's a movie, Who Killed the Electric Car? But as the, one of the current commissioners at CARB says, what killed the, the real culprit was the battery. There just wasn't a good enough battery uh, for a successful electric car. Meanwhile, CARB, the California Air Resources Board, had, because of its control over uh, regulating uh, environmental issues around automobiles, and because it became the standard setter for other states as well, as time went on, became progressively really the global, the closest thing that you have today of a global regulator of the automobile industry. Um, what began as a struggle over what to do over smog and with the policies of CARBs and others set the stage for what could become one of the epochal energy battles of the next decade. And that's the competition between the electric car, the car powered by an electric battery, and one powered by the internal combustion engine, that question that I posed before. And the technology is there today in a way that it wasn't there 10 or 15 years based upon lithium ion and other batteries. It's interesting that the lithium, original technology of lithium, uh, which found its way from sort of Sony devices, you know, little electric devices started to then being used for uh, automobiles. Uh, it, it was used in personal computers. actually began as a research project in a laboratory belonging to Exxon in the 1970s because at that point there was a conviction that the world was going to run out of oil and you're going to need something else. The technology languished, then went into personal computers and so forth, and then came back to the automobile. Well, um, you all virtually, I think, probably all, almost all of you, not quite, drove here in cars with internal combustion engines. And the question is, when you come to a Zocola Forum uh, conference meeting 10 years from now, what kind of car will you be driving in here? And that is indeed one of the key storylines in the quest. Indeed, when you look at the pictures in the book, there's this painting of a dinner that took place in 1896 with Thomas Edison, who at the time was known as the most famous American in the world, much, more, much better known than the president. And next to him is a young man uh, who was an engineer at Detroit Edison by the name of Henry Ford. And Ford had been at the end of the table, and then it said, come down, because Edison was really hard of hearing. And so he had to sort of shout into his ear and to tell him uh, what Ford was working on. This is 1896, and explained the car, automobile, and Edison said, that sounds like a very good idea, and he said, young man, I think you've, you're on a good thing, and he said, and I like the notion that you're gonna use that hydrocarbon, i.e. gasoline, as, as a fuel. And Ford said that this was a tremendous vote of confidence that, for him, and eventually he left working for Detroit Edison and went into the automobile business. Now, Edison himself changed his mind a few years later, because he saw all this sort of belching smoke out of automobile engines and said, you know, let's go for an electric car because it makes a lot more sense. And he spent a lot of time and a lot of money and it, you know, there were cars and I think there's, uh, there's a one here, but there were the little cars called the Edisons and so forth. But basically when Ford brought out the Model T and sold it for $895, it was called a game over. The race, the competition between the electric car and the gasoline powered car was finished. It was, uh, it was done, it was over. And it's interesting that until uh, 
it was really, that race seemed to be settled for a century. Now, when I started writing the quest around 2005, 2006, the hot fuel was ethanol. And you had President George W. Bush promoting ethanol and sort of saying, you know, don't people find it funny that a guy from Texas who has friends in the oil business is promoting ethanol as an alternative to oil? But I have a quote from him in the book that he said to a few people when, when he was, they visited him in the Oval Office. He said, I want to get ethanol into the automobile fleet to diversify our transportation, as he put it, in order to get Hugo Chavez, the president of Venezuela, and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, out of the Oval Office, in other words, for geopolitical reasons. But it was only around 2008 where the electric car really started to get traction. And during the campaign, it was joked that McCain and uh, Obama were, were fighting with each other to see who could get closer to a Chevy Volt, because it was sort of uh, the place you wanted to be. And so today, we are in a world in which uh, we now have this competition. It's still very early days, even uh, if the, in our most uh, aggressive scenarios for electric cars, there would still be a small part of the automobile fleet by 2020. It's really 2030 that you would start to see uh, them growing in number. But there's a lot of momentum, and it's momentum in the United States. Uh, in Japan, and very much so in China, which we can come back and discuss for a number of reasons. But I'd say probably in about five years, we'll start to, you know, we'll, half a decade, we'll have a kind of clear view of where we really stand with the electric car and where it's going. But, uh, so you can see that this issue of transportation really ties into the larger themes of, of the book. The prize was really about oil and the world. Those who uh, have read it will, will know that. Uh, the Quest is a broader book because it looks at the whole range of energy issues and it says how do these pieces fit together. So that was one thing I wanted to achieve when I started to do the book. The other reason I wanted to do it is because so much had changed in the world. The Soviet Union had disappeared. China was just a few phrases in the, uh, in the prize and yet uh, now it has two chapters of its own in this, in this book. And so I wanted to tell this broad story and a story that would bring people uh, into it. Energy tends to be regarded as, as something abstract, or uh, actually, as somebody said to me just before uh, this evening's um, uh, discussion began, uh, when I came in, said it's, it's doom and gloom all the time. And I wanted to uh, show something more balanced. I wanted to tell a story about politics and foreign policy, economics, the clash of nations and technology. But it's also very much a story about people and very vivid and engaging people. It's great characters. I loved writing about them. I mentioned Ari Hagen-Smith uh, already as one example. Another example is uh, Albert Einstein. You know, obviously everybody knows who Einstein is. But when he graduated from university, he had a problem that's not dissimilar that many people graduating from university face today. He couldn't get a job and he grew more and more morose. His father, in fact, wrote a letter to uh, a chemistry professor saying, could you find work for my son? Uh, he feels his career has been permanently derailed, and uh, in addition that he grows happier, unhappier every day. Well, Einstein finally, through a friend, got a job working in the patent office in Bern in Switzerland, and it was a great job because it didn't take up much time. He had a lot of free time on his hands, and so in 10 weeks, he wrote five papers that changed the world. 
One of those papers was actually the, tech, the paper that laid out the theoretical basis of uh, the photoelectric cell for solar power. It took 50 years for, and that's the one he got the Nobel Prize for, it took 50 years from that to go actually into solar cells that were first put into the satellites that the United States put up in competition with the Soviet Union after the famous Sputnik satellite. Cost didn't matter. And now here we are another century, half century later and solar is still very small but becoming competitive. But so Einstein's a character. Another great character, one actually I'm gonna see him tomorrow, is a man named Jim Delson. He spent New Year's Eve 1981 atop a wind turbine in the Tehachapi Pass uh, in California in a, in a blizzard trying to get his wind turbine up because the tax credits were gonna run out at midnight and if he didn't get it up, game over. He said there has to be a better way for this and so he went off to uh, Europe and discovered Danish wind machines, wind turbines, started to import them and they became the backbone of the uh, California uh, wind industry, where, which was mainly where the wind industry was uh, in the 1980s. And so when you drive to Palm Springs and you see all of those old wind turbines, uh, many of them are from, um, from Denmark. Another character in the book is, and comes weaves in and out is Ronald Reagan. I can, this is the only, you know, this talks about Reagan's worst moment in uh, his acting career when he ended up doing stand-up comedy in uh, Las Vegas because he couldn't get any other uh, uh, business. And then he got a job becoming the spokesman for General Electric and promoting the all-electric home. Uh, and he did these commercials where his wife Nancy would talk about these wonderful new electric servants they had, like a vacuum cleaner, you know, these incredible breakthrough technology. Uh, they turned their home in Pacific Palisades into a showcase for the all-electric home. Uh, indeed, there was so much additional wiring in the house for it that Reagan joked that they had a, a, a direct electric line to Hoover Dam to get the electricity. But the reason I write about it, aside from the fact that it's interesting and kind of entertaining, is that it, it really is a way of describing uh, electrification of American life after World War II. What we're seeing happening in China today with its significance is what happened in the United States in the 1950s and into the 1960s and, uh, and the kind of challenges that it had and really transformed our, all of our lives. Uh, the story I tell has a lot of dimensions, but there are a few big themes that I kept knocking up against. One is the question of simply how are we going to supply the economic, the energy that a growing world economy needs. Uh, and it's because growth has shifted from the developed countries, as you all know, to the emerging markets. And China today uses more energy than the United States, and it's going to continue to go up like that. So, you know, when you look at our world economy today, you say in 20 years, what we get out of the downturn we're in now, it could be double what it is. Question is, where's the energy supply? What's going to be the mix? So that's a really uh, big question. And uh, particularly when you realize that probably uh, energy demand is gonna grow by 30 or 40%. A second question is, the, is a whole question about energy security. It takes many different forms. As you know, electricity went out in south of here in San Diego. We've had it on the, on the east coast when you, you're, we're so dependent upon electricity and when the system goes down, uh, for whatever reason, uh, it, it mobilizes society. There are the traditional concerns as well, like unrest in the Middle East. There's new concerns about cyber warfare. 
Uh, there's a greater uncertainty that's emerged after the Arab Spring because what was the Arab Spring has now turned into the Arab Autumn. And uh, we saw the, the riots this week in Egypt. And it really tells us how difficult uh, it's going to be. And so that raises questions about the stability of the region that has 60% of world uh, uh, oil resources. Uh, there's the Iranian nuclear program, which is just hanging out there. And it's going to, con at the very least, it could set off a, a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. But what we saw today with the announcement of the Iranian plot to blow up embassies and uh, assassinate the Saudi ambassador in Washington, D.C., uh, a further element of ratcheting up tensions uh, in a, what are already very tense relationship in that region, particularly between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And as I said, the region was 60% of world oil reserves. Technology is a theme that uh, I found more than I expected when I started just running through the whole book. And what I'm struck by, it's constantly changing. Uh, it, things don't stand still. Renewable technology has advanced enormously from where it was even in the 1980s or 1990s. A wind turbine today is a much more larger and much more technolo technologically complex machine than the ones that you might see in Cabazon. I talk about the interest that venture capital, uh, Silicon Valley has taken in energy starting around 2004. Uh, in, but uh, in a chapter called the science experiment. And we see this great bubbling of innovation all across the energy spectrum. One example is uh, shale gas. I was talking with uh, some students uh, beforehand about it. Uh, I regard this as the biggest innovation in energy of the last two or three decades. Uh, it's very significant. It's already 30% of our natural gas supply. Other countries are rushing to emulate us. And we see a whole series of kind of breakthroughs in technologies in conventional energy as well. Uh, what's called uh, tight oil in the United States. U.S. oil production is up 10% since 2008. In Brazil, they've cracked the code about what are called pre-salt uh, offshore resources that are thought to be very large. And it's amazing to see the development of Canadian oil sands, which is now a pillar of our uh, energy supply and energy security in this country. It's as much uh, oil as produced in the Canadian oil sands as uh, Libya was exporting uh, prior to its civil war. So these, it's a very big number, and these are resources that come to the United States and they don't have to travel here by tanker. And then that leads to the fourth question is how do we combine our energy needs with our environmental objectives? Climate change is, of course, uh, front and center in terms of consideration. And one of the things I like to explore in the book is where did things come from? How did they happen? And it turned out that the interest in climate change originally began in the Alps in Europe uh, in the late 18th and 19th century. Uh, it was people were fascinated with glaciers and they realized there had been an ice age and they were concerned uh, that the glaciers would come back. But as I looked at, and as again, as I was preparing this remark, I was thinking how much of really the development of the thinking about climate change is actually a California story. And there's one particular scientist named Charles David Keeling, who's a man who measured carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, he tried to do it on a rooftop in Caltech, couldn't do it actually because there was too much smog in the air. He tried to do it in Big Sur, there was too much vegetation, which led to variation. Eventually, he went to an a, um, observatory in Hawaii that was up about 13,000 feet. Uh, and a lot of the work was based at, at where he was, at the Scripps Oceanographic Institute, 
And one of his colleagues said of Keeling, he wants in his belly to measure carbon dioxide, to measure it in every possible way and to understand everything there is to know about carbon dioxide. He's never been interested in anything else. So like, it's funny, you'll find a lot of the characters in the book are actually kind of either you would say they're very focused individuals or very obsessive individuals, depending on your perspective, but they're great tenacity, whatever their subject is. Now, I was talking beforehand uh, with some of the students about shale gas, which is uh, otherwise associated with what has now become that famous word fracking, um, which actually is a shortened form of the word hydraulic fracturing. Uh, it has entered our vocabulary now. It's become very well known, although there's actually no agreement as to how you spell fracking. If you spell it with a K, two C's, one C, and I kind of think that we need a national commission to address that. Uh, in the meantime, I am on this commission that was appointed by the Secretary of Energy to look at the environmental questions around shale gas. And, uh, we did, and then uh, in March, President Obama called on us to do a report on how to manage it from an environmental point of view. And so we certainly researched it and looked at the questions that need to be managed, which have to do with the water that's produced, that have to do with air pollution, which have to do with community impact. And our argument is uh, really based upon the research that all of these are manageable. Uh, many of them require uh, the best practices in terms of technology. They need more technology. They need community engagement. But if it's done in an environmentally sound way with transparency and disclosure, uh, then this resource can go along and meet what President Obama said, be 100 years worth of supply, and uh, have profound impact in terms of our energy economy, in terms of cheaper electricity, whole host of things, and also energy security. But it's exactly an example of where you have to manage the relationship between environmental objectives and needs and uh, energy needs. Now, looking forward, I've said that the challenge is to provide the supplies that the world needs. Uh, world energy demand is even with much greater efficiency, and uh, Gregory, in introducing me, mentioned the uh, award I got last week in regard for energy efficiency. I actually regard energy efficiency as our biggest single new source of energy. As a country, we're twice as energy efficient as we were a few decades ago, and if, I just sometimes think if we hadn't achieved that, we would be in a much more difficult situation. But so if you look at a doubling of the world economy and you say, well, energy demand might grow by 35 to 40%. Those are big numbers. And uh, how you do it and what it looks like is a question of great interest. It seems at this point, probably, our energy supply system wouldn't look too different. That is because, uh, and that means a system, today we get about 80% of our energy from oil, natural gas, and coal. That number will go down somewhat. But because of the lead times, because energy takes a lot of capital, takes long lead time because of scale, you don't change it overnight. And you look at China, yes, they're putting wind in, but they're putting a lot of coal-fired plants uh, in as well. After 2030 or so, then I think it's when our energy system could start looking quite different from what it is today. So our challenge is to assure that that energy's there, that the investment is made, that security is addressed, that the environmental issues are addressed. Um, and how do we do that? Well, there's where I don't you know, share the gloom and doom view that uh, one often encounters. 
Maybe it's because I look at this long sweep of history and see adaptation, and I see innovation responding to need again and again. Certainly the pressure is there. Uh, we talk about globalization. We've had a globalization of demand. I've talked about China, a uh, number of char cars growing very rapidly in China. But we're seeing something else too. And that something else is a globalization of innovation. Yes, the United States is, continues to be at the forefront of innovation, and you just have to be around any of our great universities to know that. But at the same time, we see other innovative centers in India and China and other places. And so there's a much wider playing field. And that means that the resource base of knowledge and creativity is expanding. So I try to sort of say, as I'm writing this book, how do I characterize it against everything else that's out there? Uh, and there is, as I say, a lot of doom and gloom. Uh, I think I would say that the book is optimistic, but I would say I hope it's realistically optimistic. What the quest shows is that the, you know, when you look at the past and look where we are and where we're going, that the risks of conflict and crisis and disruption are inherent. And uh, things will happen in the future. I mean, just, you know, there will be th things that just uh, triggers that set off events. We know that there will be crises of one kind or another. We know that particular things are not handled well, things can go wrong, or they could even go seriously wrong with dire consequences. But when you stand back and look at it all, and you look at what some have called the Great Revolution, two and a half centuries of innovation and energy, that we've gone from a world where not so many, you know, two and a half centuries ago was all human labor and animal labor, and to where we are today, we know that we need to create a uh, context in which it assures that the creativity and ingenuity can flourish so that this kind of revolution of innovation continues. It's critical for assuring the security and sustainability of energy for a prosperous world. And I think that assuring the security, availability, sustainability of energy at reasonable prices for a prosperous wor world is really the quest that I, that sums up the quest that I write about in the quest. Uh, and it is really, when you think about it that way, and it, how much it depends upon creativity, you realize that this quest is a, as much about human spirit as it is about technology and energy. And that is why I am absolutely convinced that this is one quest that never will end, and it is a quest that should never end. Thank you. what would be the barrel the price of oil in 2025? What would you think that would be? Second, does uh, water come up at all as a resource, as a scarcity resource in your argument? And I was wondering if you can just briefly touch on just water as another very precious commodity. How many decimal points do you want me to go out to? <laughs> uh, I have learned uh, to, that you've got to approach that question only with scenarios because so the price of oil will be determined by what happens to the world economy, what happens to um, uh, technology. Indeed, that question I said about the electric car, all of that will be there. So I think I could say the price today, there's a kind of floor around it, around maybe 50 to $60, which are costs. Um, but we're also seeing something interesting in the United States. We have peak demand. Our oil demand is actually going to go down. And it might be a little too soon to be expecting that for um, 
you know, the emerging markets. But as I say, I, I think you can only tackle that in, in scenarios. So you're, you're, I'm not, you can't pin me down on that. Um, the, um, yeah, it's just uh, so many other things. The price of oil sort of tells, is a, it tells you a story about so many other things. Uh, obviously, people need, you know, but some of the oil projects that are being done now, today, will not start producing until 2025, so people do need a planning horizon. And, uh, you know, probably, you know, people kind of use a range of prices that are not too different from today. But one of the other things is I think if price goes up sharply, then as you get in 2008, you get prices coming down because for reasons that people aren't thinking about. And another California story, and, and I talk about this in the chapter on, um, the, called the demand shock about what happened when gasoline started to go to f over $4 a gallon. What you could see is the price went up. The state of California was collecting less money from uh, t tax on gasoline and what that tells you, the demand was going down so that there, there's a dynamics between the two of it. So that's a slightly long answer when you were just asking for a number. And your second question was? Um, water. Oh, water. Water is, um, it figures in many ways uh, in the energy equation. Ethanol takes a lot of water. Uh, there's a question I said with shale gas, what do you do with the water that is produced when you're running the wells? Uh, and, you know, the question, you know, conflict or not, desalinization itself takes a lot of energy. So there is a kind of uh, nexus between water and energy. Also, power plants require it. So, and we did a paper on it a couple of years ago. I'm not sure it's, but it tends to be a local, regional question rather than a global question. First of all, I want to commend you on what I think is an excellent book. I've read most of it at this point, and it couldn't be a more ambitious topic, and you've given a lot of perspective and context. So. Uh, uh, that's very impressive. The one section that I saw so far that I feel like you were pulling some punches was around climate change. And I'm just curious if you feel that given the perspective you're trying to offer, if you think that the science of climate change is one where um, we are facing some significant challenges that need to be addressed over the next decade or two. And secondly, if so, how do you believe the hydrocarbon-based companies, uh, how seriously are they viewing the need to take action there? This book became progressively more ambitious as I was writing it. Uh, it I had certainly bitten off more than I expected when I started. I think climate change, I tried to come at it uh, a different way rather than taking a, you know, a specific viewpoint. I was trying to answer a kind of different question, which is one that had, I had found so interesting, which is how did something that was of interest to a small number of scientists become this big political energy economic question? And kind of, I thought that was a story that really hadn't been told, and that's what I, so that's what I was trying to do. I mean, obviously on climate, you know, the preponderance of scientific view is that climate is an issue, certainly as, uh, Charles David Keeling demonstrated carbon is going up. Uh, some of the argument is about, you know, timing and scale of it. But I didn't want to, you know, what I wanted to do was kind of tell this other story and then that set up the response to it. Then if the architecture of the book is that then this is one of the main reasons for the rebirth of renewables as a way, as you're saying, to find carbon-free energy, but recognizing the constraints that are there. I think among the major oil companies, uh, 
you know, some of them have been quite active, uh, you know, at the forefront of wind and so forth. Uh, I think they're all extremely interested in biofuels because that is, you know, the way you would maintain your same distribution system and yet uh, uh, do it in a way that uh, would, would balance out on carbon. So I think that's where the, where the balance of research is, is going. My sense is that people are finding it tougher to kind of crack that particular code uh, than they might have thought a few years ago. But something that is new, you didn't really have biologists in the energy business then, you do now. If they kind of stick the process, I think that's where uh, one of the areas you could say still, although it's sort of off the agenda, where you could see significant breakthrough. I'm looking at uh, even the pure electric car with zero emissions is still a consumer of, of obviously a lot of fossil fuel at this point. And what do you anticipate by, say, the 25 or 30, uh, 2030 horizon point will be the percentage of our resources that comes from non-fossil fuel sources, oil or gas, and what sort of distribution in those sources do you expect? Most um, forecasts today, which are always based upon what you know today, are that you know, somewhere about 75 to 80% of uh, energy in 2030 will come from hydrocarbons, will come from fossil fuels, which ties back to the climate question, just because of the scale of growth. Uh, a group called the International Energy Agency, which is trying to coordinate among the uh, industrial countries, tried to do a very aggressive climate change-driven agenda, and so they were able to get around down to about 65%. So, in other words, this is, you know, it's like cognitive distance, you know, over here's a concern about climate and carbon, but here's what's happening in the energy picture. Uh, one way to address it goes back to being just being a lot more efficient. If our cars in 2025 are getting, our internal combustion engine cars are getting 54 miles to the gallon instead of 30 uh, miles to the gallon, that means less carbon coming out. But the other part of your question is indeed, and this is kind of where one of the arguments is about the electric car, is how are you generating your electricity? Uh, is it, are you generating it with coal, which might declining share, or natural gas, or how much of it can be generated with wind and solar? And I think uh, wind in particular has grown a lot, but still a very small part of the mix and it needs to be balanced out. So I think people are talking about you have to do a, you know, a, a, an analysis over the entire cycle uh, to actually determine how an electric car, uh, you know, what is its ca carbon contribution depending on how you're charging it. That's why it's still part of the early days about electric cars. My question is about Saudi Arabia. A few years ago, an oil industry executive wrote a book saying that their field, you know, due to lack of transparency, their fields aren't going to last as long as the Saudis would like the West to believe. I didn't read his book, but do you think his argument was correct? I do uh, address that question. Obviously, Saudi Arabia, along with Russia, the, those are the two largest oil producers in the world. I think, um, you know, subsequent research, in fact, the Saudis have expanded their capacity. And so, you know, it looks like they, they do have ample oil uh, reserves. They do have this huge field called Gawar that is uh, in, uh, described in the book in Middle Age. And, uh, uh, but they're also interested, it's interesting, they're adapting some of the technology we're using to kind of uh, look for additional oil. So I think Saudi Arabia uh, will 
remain very critical to world oil production. And that sense that there's an imminent crisis in their production, uh, I think, has been pushed off far into the future, or at least into the future, so that there's still uh, going to be, it may require more investment than it has in the past to maintain production, but uh, I think they're going to continue to be in the position they're in. You mentioned the Canadian sand oil reserves. I don't know too much about them, but I've heard that they're obtaining and processing this oil can be, is very environmentally destructive. What is your opinion on the sand oil from your yeah. environmental opinion? To give an example, people say it is so much more carbon. You know, that's one of the major criticisms. But again, going back to that question about electric power before, if you do a, what's called a well-to-wheels analysis, the Canadian oil sands is about 6% more carbon in the atmosphere than average barrels. And we use many other barrels in the United States that are also 6% more. Uh, the land issues are criticized, but then you actually, the footprint is really pretty small. It's the size of Greater Houston in a province that's the size of Texas. And I think Canadians get really irritated because it sort of suggests they hear Americans, U.S. citizens seeming to say the Canadians don't care about the environment and they don't regulate. And in fact, they care about the environment and it's pretty highly regulated. So I know those criticisms are there. They're a very hot topic because of the talk about building a new pipeline in the United States. But as far as I can see it, this is a uh, major resource. It's to our benefit as a country. Uh, it improves our energy security. C Canada is a source of 25% of our oil imports right now. Uh, and that, um, again, there are environmental issues, but they all can be managed with uh, a combination of innovation and regulation. So, I've, But it is a hot topic, and as we get closer to approving the pipeline, the kind of concerns you're talking about will certainly become uh, more you know, vivid by those who hold them. My question has to do with uh, two things that you mentioned. The first thing being that the, the greatest discovery in the last 30, 40 years in energy is the discovery of energy efficiencies. And the second thing that you mentioned being that in the next 20 years, energy uh, demand is expected to increase 30 or 40 percent. Now, with the, the breakthroughs in efficiency technology, uh, turbo diesel engines like you have in Volkswagens that can get 50 miles per gallon on an con internal combustion engine, or b aviation biofuels like that my company, uh, Honeywell Aerospace, produces, um, we're seeing uh, great strides in energy efficiency that are re reducing the need to, to gain more supplies. I would say in the next 20 years or so, in 2030, what do you see the mix of, um, in terms of meeting that increased demand of 30 to 40%, do you see it mostly coming from increased energy efficiencies like turbo technologies or um, like more fuel efficient planes like Airbus and Boeing are now coming out with that we're seeing increasing demand in the aerospace sector? Uh, or do you see it mostly coming from a broader supply of different types of energy? You know, envisioning the future, so many different factors will, will shape it. But I think the answer is it's kind of all of the above. I think efficiency, um, I really think that, you know, what you describe on a vehicle, you know, if you just think about it, if all the cars in the country, instead of averaging whatever they do today, 23 miles per gallon, we're averaging 54, that's a huge change. Uh, the Dreamliner you refer to, the, uh, the, the Boeing's new plane is 20% more uh, energy efficient. Um, they're going to, trying to achieve this energy efficiency uh, in all these different ways. Uh, one surprised me the other day, after about 11 years, my wife and I decided we needed to get a new car. So we bought a new car, and, and just as we were about to drive it out, they said, oh, we just wanted to tell you there's no spare tire. 
And we said, pardon me? <laughs> and they said, well, and I don't know if anybody else has had this experience, but they have eliminated the spare tire to reduce weight uh, in order to make the car more efficient. So I'm not sure all trade-offs are, 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 are excellent. Um, but the other one is, I think that uh, what's happened with the shale gas and now shale oil, uh, it is a, this is a big surprise, because this is, the, I talked about the other major innovation, uh, and you're now seeing U.S. oil production, as I mentioned, going up, and other countries applying it, so that kind of opens up uh, on the supply side, but I think, uh, and then I think you refer to biofuels and trying to achieve the kind of drop-in biofuels that could, uh, uh, for aviation fuel, but I think, um, so I, I kind of think it's just, it's, it's that broad range of things, and innovation is driven by need, and the need is there when you look at the scale of growth that's out there, and can think about what kind of risks are, are there, and concerns about climate and so forth. I think that if you sort of see that the global economy is going to double, and energy is going to increase by 35 or 40 percent, then you would say there's a big component of efficiency. Even to achieve that, you need a big component of efficiency. And I'm really struck that China, uh, has put um, energy efficiency at the top of their energy agenda because they realize that they're in an impossible situation if they don't do that. And I was talking to the mayor of a Chinese uh, city, and uh, he's, it's different than a mayor in America because he actually also runs the local economy. And he gets graded on you know, how many jobs you create and, uh, his, and how much GDP do you increase. But they're now also graded on what do you do in terms of promoting energy efficiency. And it's just that recognition that they've got to do it too. And to me, that one of the big changes is you actually do have a rather broad consensus about energy efficiency that didn't exist in the past. Uh, but there is a problem with energy efficiency. And it was described to me by the former head of the European Union's uh, uh, energy commissioner. And he said the problem with it, he says it's very effective. He says, and I quote him in the book, he said, but the problem is there's no red ribbon to cut. You can't have a ceremony where you inaugurate an energy efficiency something or other, like you can inaugurate a Dreamliner, a, a more efficient, you know, or you can inaugurate a new wind turbine or something like that. And so it's kind of wrapping our minds around it and as the CEO, I think, of Dow says, kind of making it part of our, our DNA as we approach a whole host of, of other things. And the challenges in our homes is, uh, the, the increasing amount of what I call in the, in the quest gadget watts with all of your electronic devices that you didn't have in a home in the 1970s or 80s. Our oil demand may be going down, but we at least think our electricity demand is slated to go up. And so there's a, another area that's ripe for greater efficiency. I don't know if this is a question exactly, but since you mentioned it at the beginning of your remarks, we did arrive tonight in a vault. And it's out in the parking structure if anybody wants to get a closer look. You give at everybody a ride? Yeah, around the parking, so that'd be good. Okay. It's almost a run out of battery, but not quite yet. And we drove it from Long Beach. Um, do, you want to give, do you want to give us a review? Yeah, well, I don't want to take a lot of your time. No, no, but I've driven it 12,000 miles, and we put about 30 gallons of gas through it, leaving aside the electricity. I think he's getting a better mileage than anybody else right. here tonight. Yeah, so if you... And somebody said the other day that if you, if you could put a million units in the field, as the president has said he wants to do by 2015, and, and you do the math, so the potential savings in gasoline are just breathtaking. Right. And plus, it's really a lot of fun. I'm a sort of a Peterson Museum, no car super enough type of guy all my life. And when I get into this car, my whole driving style and mindset 
totally does a 180, as my lady friend here can tell you. It's going to pay for itself in the savings and speeding tickets because it, <laughs> you know, it becomes a game of how far can you stretch the battery range. You know, and Where I used to drive 80 on the freeway, now I drive 60 in the slow lane and watch the battery range. So it's, but I'm just saying. It's, it, but well, it's, somebody wanted to know about your electricity bill. It's gone from $30 a month to $70 a month. And I, I've driven it you know, 12,000 miles in, since March, so it's not sitting in the garage. Um, anyway, I just want to pass that along. I mean, I, I, to me, it's just been a lot of fun, and I highly recommend it. And do you, you know, do you drive it differently? I mean, absolutely. You said, yeah. yeah, with a you know, with a. It, it, I, I mean, I understand cars. We work with cars every day, and you you understand the physics of it and what causes gas consumption to go up and down. But somehow, the game of stretching the battery range out to the maximum. <laughs> just drives it home and and you do all the things you know you need to do to to so as a not to turn the questions around here but as an early you're you count as an early adopter so what made you decide to sign up and get that first volt it's funny because i'm not an early adopter of most gadgets and things electronic i probably have the oldest cell phone in the room for example but you know we're, we're car guys and the and the the uh the technology of it is just so stunning, and and it, it's hard to walk away from. And and we work with General Motors products. Otherwise, I would have bought a Prius ten years ago. But I, I'm uh. all the things you talk about: energy security and and climate issues and everything else are so tied up in the cars we drive. And the and the technology's getting available now for people to make a statement on a personal level and really make a difference. It's uh, it's actually pretty thrilling. Well. Thank you. So, uh, so we'll have one line for those who want to get uh, books after the speech, and another will line up with you, and you'll give them a ride around the parking lot. Thanks. So thank you very much. I study peak oil, and it seems to me that peak oil is here, not because of the price, which doesn't make any sense because so many things control price, but because of production. Production has been so flat through uh, the past five or six years that I think peak oil is here. And if peak oil, at least conventional oil, is really here, how does that square with your projections that we're gonna need lots and lots of oil for the next, uh, my, the rest of my life. <laughs> Those who don't know, peak oil is the theory that um, we've reached a high point in oil consumption or we're near a high point and it's headed south and we're going to have uh, production. a, a yeah, did I say, yeah, exactly, a production. Uh, and uh, that this is, uh, you know, it's, some people hold that, to that theory ver very fervently. Uh, it's something that we've looked at and something I address in the book, and I just don't find when we do our numbers uh, that we see it. We, uh, our, you know, our firm has the largest databases of oil fields in the world, 87,000 oil fields, 4.7 million oil wells, and we simply don't see it. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of recurrent theme of the world running out of oil. This is not to say that it's not a serious concern, because it is a serious concern, and I take the argument seriously. Just uh, we see oil sands, we see uh, tight oil, we see the pre-salt in Brazil, we see the new discoveries off Guyana, we see 
uh, uh, in Latin America, in Ghana, that uh, development, but at the same time see a lot of risks above ground, and I'm not sure if that's what you were also referring to, whether investment is made in a timely way, what governments decide to do or not do, uh, the risk of conflict. Uh, you can see Venezuela has a lot of oil, but its oil output is going down, which have to do with the decisions and the politics above ground. So in terms of future supply, tend to focus more on the above ground risk rather than the notion that we are uh, near or at a, at a peak. So it's just it's a different point of view. I know that I'm very biased because I work for a solar company, but do you believe that residential and commercial projects can make a profound impact on our future? Solar projects, I mean. If we say ultimately, where's our energy gonna come from? It's probably solar. And I think the challenge, as you know, in the solar business is to, is to continually bring down the costs. Uh, and uh, now we facilitate solar in this country with uh, basically with the state requirements to, to put solar in. Uh, solar tends more wind gets put in because the economics of wind often work better on large scale. But I think that you know, solar is gonna become more common and I can see, I talk in the book to some of both the US but also you'll see interviews with kind of the, some of the Chinese uh, solar manufacturers and you see that the kind of constant focus on bringing down costs and I'm on this uh, energy advisory board at MIT, and you see more scientists there probably in the energy field are working on solar than anything else. So I think solar is gonna become you know, a bigger part of the mix, but I think to get to real scale, costs need to continue to come down. Have you, have you taken note of what has happened at uh, University of Ber at Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley? Uh, in, in May, they had a, a meeting of accelerator physicists from all over the world, and, and they were looking at the accelerator-driven uh, fusion process. I'm not aware. The, uh, there was a presentation made by a, a Dr. Robert Burke, who worked on, on fusion in the Argonne lab back in the 76, 78 period of time, and he made a presentation that uh, showed that fusion was viable today, uh, that it could produce 500,000 barrels of oil a day uh, using the process from Los Alamos, uh, the uh, green freedom uh, process that they, that they researched, and that it has the potential of 35 gigawatts of electricity. Interest in, 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 in your it, comment. It, it, you know, I'm afraid I'm not familiar with it at all. Uh, obviously, I, it goes back to what I said, you know, that there are going to be things that come at surprises. Now, people have had high hopes for fusion for a long time. It hasn't happened, but it doesn't mean that it won't happen. I look at so many things and they take 20 or 30 years and then they sort of burst upon the scene. Did they put a date on it? The, the, the aspect was that the, the, the date they said was 10 years off to 12 years for production because using currently known technologies, nothing has to be invented. It's taking the the accelerator that was used uh, for radio frequency uh, heavy ions. I will look into it. I will follow up. Uh, the story's not over, for sure. The quest continues. So uh, thank you, and thank you all very much. It's been great being with you this evening. <laughs>